Well, if you turn to the, the final chapter of 1 Peter, I emphasise that word final, uh, and we are rapidly speeding to, towards the end. I wonder, how do you answer if someone asks you if you're humble? It's one of those <laughs> tricky catch-22 type questions, isn't it? Um, if you say yes, well, it sounds as though you're being a bit boastful, so you're not humble. And if you say no, well, it looks as though you're perhaps indulging in a bit of false modesty, so you're not humble. So it's one of those can't-win questions, isn't it? But I wonder what comes to your mind um, if you're asked about humility. What do you think of when you hear the word humility? You perhaps think about not blowing your own trumpet, um, not seeking attention, not being proud, not being boastful, perhaps being self-deprecating. Those are the sorts of things, I guess, that most people would think about if asked about humility. Um, but they're mainly about the impression that you give, aren't they? And the theme of the, the passage we're looking at this evening is humility, and it shows us that, that biblical humility is more than mere outward appearances. Now, last time we, we looked at the first four verses of uh, 1 Peter 5, where we saw that Peter gave an exhortation to elders. And we recognise that Peter wasn't talking about old people. He, he was using the word elders as the term that's commonly used uh, in the New Testament for church leaders who, who shepherd the flock, and exercise oversight. And he said that they are to do so not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the picture that he painted uh, of elders was that they are not to be brash, not to be boastful, not to be arrogant. Uh, they're to be marked by a a gentleness and humility. Uh, and Peter also made it clear that they are subject to Jesus as the chief shepherd. So elders are to be characterised by humility. Uh, but as we now move into verses 5 to 7, where humility is the prominent theme, we find that Peter goes on to make it clear that humility uh, is not just for the elders... Uh, it should characterise all believers in Christ. First, firstly, here we see he speaks of uh, humility in being subject to the elders. Uh, secondly, he speaks of humility towards one another. And then thirdly, humility under the mighty hand of God. So firstly, humility in being subject to the elders you see that in the first half of verse 5, um, but it does need a little bit of clarification because uh, there are significant differences between the various versions. Uh, the ESV presents it as, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. The NIV has, young men in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Uh, both versions are similar in that they say likewise or in the same way. Uh, and they both mean much the same and point back to what Peter 
said about church leaders in verses 1 to 4, um, it tells us that what he's saying to those he's addressing now has some similarity uh, with what he said to the elders. But we need to work out what he's saying and who he's saying it to. Um, now, what he's saying is either be subject or be submissive, um, depending on which is the best rendition. In this instance, I think the NIV is correct in saying be submissive. Um, uh, we've come across this previously in, in 1 Peter, in both chapters 2 and 3, when, remember, Peter was speaking about our, our submission to rulers and sub the submission of slaves to their masters and the submission of Christian wives to their husband. And in all of those cases, the idea was of a, a willing, active submission, rather than passively being subject. So it seems like it's exactly the same idea here. question is then, who's he telling to be submissive, and to whom is he telling them to submit? Well, according to the NIV, it's young men who are to be submissive to those who are older. Um, no doubt many young men would have grave reservations about that and old men would <coughs> nod their heads very wisely and say, quite right too. Um, however, th there are problems with that translation. Uh, the Greek text doesn't actually mention men at all. Um, uh, and the Greek word that's been translated there in the NIV as those who are older is actually exactly the same word that we've already come across in the opening verses that was translated as elder and used to re refer to church leaders. So uh, the literal translation of the Greek text is simply likewise younger, be submissive to elder. That, that's what the, the Greek is actually saying. And given that elder has already been used about a church leader, it seems very unlikely that Peter is suddenly going to use it in a different sense in the space of uh, a few verses. So I think the ESV is correct in saying that the submission that Peter has in mind is the su is submission to elders. And that being the case, it follows that what he means by you who are younger, it's really simply a way uh, of describing those who are not church leaders. The sense then becomes that in the same way as elders are to be humble and submissive to Jesus as the chief shepherd, so we who are uh, ordinary sheep in the flock are to be submissive to our elders as they shepherd us. And that takes humility, doesn't it? Because we naturally like to think that we can manage. We naturally like to think that we're self-sufficient. We, we don't like to admit uh, that we often uh, can be needy and require care and attention and advice. Uh, to say that we are to be submissive to, to elders doesn't mean that we are to slavishly do whatever they say, but it does mean that we're to respect them, we're to take them seriously uh, and accept uh, that we sometimes need their care and their attention. After all, that's their role. As we said, the whole purpose of an elder is to shepherd the flock, and that is by definition, a, a caring function and a caring role. And if God has provided shepherds, well, that means that we sheep sometimes need their help and sometimes are needy. So that takes humility, but we need to be 
uh, very clear about that. But then moving on, we see that Peter next speaks of humility towards one another. Uh, we see that in, in verse 5, where he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So having addressed elders in verses 1 to 4, and then non-elders at the beginning of verse 5, he now addresses all of you. So that means the whole church. This is elders and non-elders alike. And we see that he tells them to clothe themselves. Now you might think that he's um, simply using the idea of putting on clothes, or of getting dressed as a, as a metaphor. Uh, and it's true that uh, the New Testament does sometimes uh, use the idea of clothing yourself with various virtues. However, the particular Greek word that Peter uses here is one that's only used on this one occasion in the whole New Testament. And it isn't talking about getting dressed. It isn't talking about putting on clothes. Uh, it literally means to bind on or, or tie on. And it was used in connection with the practice uh, of slaves who would not a scarf or an apron over their clothing to distinguish themselves from free men. So it, it indicated their lowly, humble status. And when you recognise that, it becomes a much more powerful image, doesn't it, than, than just uh, clothing yourself with humility. Um, it, it's, it's much more... Uh, penetrating than that. We see what Peter calls all believers uh, to clothe themselves with, or rather to tie on, to show their lowly status, and it is humility. So he's really saying, indicate your humble status, the, the, the lowly way in which you, you view yourself, by showing humility. Um, as we thought at the outset, humility isn't um, just not being boastful. It isn't just a, an outward appearance. It, it's seen in what we do. True humility leads to humble actions. Um, I think Paul gives us a, a wonderful description of, of biblical humility in, in Philippians 2, 3 to 4, doesn't he? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So to be humble is to count others more significant than yourselves. It begins with that inner conviction of the NIV has better than yourselves. The, the idea is putting others first and considering them to be more important than you. Your needs to be more uh, there, there needs to be more important than your needs. It's not just something that you think, it affects what you do and leads to actions. Because Paul goes on to say, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's saying to do things for the well-being of others. And notice he says, each of you are to do that. That's exactly what Peter has stressed, isn't it? He said, all of you. So such active humility 
is to be a distinguishing mark of all believers in Christ. And of course, Jesus is our our great example in this, isn't he? So continuing in Philippians 2, Paul went on to say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There really is no no greater example of humility than that, is there? Jesus, who was God from eternity, so humbled himself that he became a man. And as a man, uh, he wasn't wealthy, he wasn't exalted, he was born in a stable, the son of a carpenter. He willingly took the form of a servant. Uh, And what's more, he was born as a man so that he could die. Uh, And the death that he died was uh, a shameful, humiliating death. He, he died by, by crucifixion. And he did that um, for you and me. He did that for sinners. So, as we see from Christ's example, to, to be humble is to serve the interests of others in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that is costly. Notice that this humility is to be toward one another. It's not that there are some uh, that we ought to be humble towards uh, and others that ought to be humble towards us. There's not a pecking order here. There's not a, if you like, a hierarchy of humility. No, it's towards one another. We're all to show humility to one another. Um, We're not to consider anyone to be beneath us. Uh, We're not to consider anything to be beneath us if it serves the interests of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Neither are we to be too proud to accept such humble service from a brother or sister in Christ. In saying this, I wonder if uh, Peter was remembering that scene in the upper room, when Jesus and his disciples were gathered together for the Last Supper. And you remember that none of them had taken upon themselves that very humble task of foot washing. Not not something we need to do in our society, is it? But uh, it's not a very appealing prospect. I can't imagine that any of us would would love the job of uh, washing other people's feet. But in those days, it was it was necessary, and that's what was done. And yet, none of the disciples uh, had thought to do it. And so, Jesus, uh, we're told, he, he took up a, a bowl and a towel, and he bent down to wash their feet. Immediately, the clear message is that that no task is too menial for us in serving one another. You know if. If the God of the universe bends down and washes feet, um, surely it's something that uh, shouldn't be beneath us either. So that's the obvious uh, initial 
clear message. But the lesson didn't stop there because when Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, you remember that Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Uh, And then asserted, you shall never wash my feet. And no doubt, (coughs) Peter thought he was being very humble in saying that. He was saying, I'm not worthy for you to do that. I'm being humble. Uh, And yet, uh, you you, you notice that Jesus rebuked him and, and said, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. And Jesus was saying that if you're one of his people, if you're a member of his kingdom, then not only must you be humble enough to wash uh, feet, but you must also be humble enough to allow others to wash your feet. Our humility is to be such that we're not only to be ready to do anything for anyone, but also ready for anyone to do anything for us. And in our British society, I suspect we find that a lot harder than being willing to do things for others. Um, it's a lesson we really need to learn, but it's, it's challenging, isn't it? So being humble and putting others first, it seems very counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, Greek culture despised humility as a, as a sign of weakness. Uh, and it's still countercultural in our modern society, isn't it? You know, if you uh, adopt a Darwinian survival of the fittest philosophy, well, humility makes no sense whatsoever, does it? You know, it's uh, it, it's the way to destruction. It's it's not gonna it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, being <coughs> humble is certainly contrary to modern ideas about self-assertiveness and all the rest of it, isn't it? You know, companies send their employees off on courses on self-assertiveness. Um, I wonder what Jesus would have said about that. Uh, but that, that's very much the spirit of, of the age and society in which we live, isn't it? But of course, that's completely missing God out of the picture. Once, uh, once you factor God in, the perspective changes and it becomes very clear that humility really is the wise way to live. You see, Peter goes on to say, for. So he's now giving us a reason for clothing ourselves with humility towards one another. Um, As has so often been the case throughout the letter, the reason that Peter gives comes from a quotation from the Old Testament. uh, And this time it's from Proverbs 3, uh, 33 to 34. And what Peter says from there is, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you see now he's, he's bringing God into the picture and he provides the reason to be humble. In, in fact, he, he gives the reason both negatively and positively. Negatively, we're to be humble because God opposes the proud. God wants us to be humble. He wants humility. <coughs> God opposes the proud and we don't want God to be against us, do we? But then positively, he gives grace to the humble. Well, we need God's grace. So we need to be humble. So those are the reasons for uh, showing humility. But then having urged us to embrace humility towards one another, um, we find that he next speaks of humility under the mighty hand of God. Uh, We see that in verses 6 and 7. Uh, where Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And you notice the, the word therefore. So what Peter is going on to, to, to say stems from the fact that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, really, Peter here tells us what, why and how. Uh, we see the what, as he says, humble yourselves. Uh, both the ESV and NIV express it in that way. And it makes it sound as though um, it, it's a command. It, it's, it makes it sound as though he is telling us to humble ourselves. Um, it gives the impression that Peter's line of reasoning is, since God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, make sure you're humble. Uh, however, the, the Greek doesn't say humble yourselves. It actually says, be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Peter's line of reasoning is, is actually that since God, God gives grace to the humble, you who are humbled, because you've clothed yourselves with humility, are to be under the mighty hand of God. Being humble can be hard. You might be mocked. You might be abused. But be aware you are under the mighty hand of God. Be conscious of that fact. Live in the light of it and take <laughs> comfort from the fact that you're under the mighty hand of God. Hearing that expression, hand of God, could make many think of Diego Maradona, uh, remember who playing for Argentina against England in the, the quarterfinals of the 1986 World Cup. Can't believe it's that long ago, but but there you go in, in Mexico, and he infamously scored uh, a goal using his hand. And uh, in the, the press conference afterwards, um, he, he said it was a, a little with the head of Maradona and a little with the hand of God. And ever since that goal has been known as the hand of God goal. Now, unlike Maradona, God doesn't have literal hands. The idea of the hand of God in our text is metaphorical. We, we work with our hands. We do things with our hands. So this is speaking, speaking of the, of the hand of God refers to his actions. God, God is not uh, just a philosophical idea. He, he's real and he is active. He was active in the work of, of creation, continues to be at work in creation. Um, and if we're humble, we recognise that and we depend upon it. Um, you notice that Peter doesn't merely speak of the hand of God. No, it's the mighty hand of God. So it doesn't just refer to his ability to work. Um, that he has a mighty hand speaks of, of his power. He doesn't just do things. He, he does great things. Nothing is too hard for him. You find that the um, Old Testament quite frequently speaks of the deliverance of the children uh, of Israel from Egypt as being by God's mighty hand. Um, for example, Exodus 32.11 But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Well, look at Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember 
that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. See, God worked powerfully in delivering them. He changed Pharaoh's hard hearts. He parted the Red Sea. He destroyed the Egyptian army. He provided for his people in the wilderness. These were all mighty acts of God. And we find the hand of the Lord at work in the New Testament as well. Look at Acts eleven twenty one, where Luke said, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now he was speaking there of persecuted believers, preaching Christ in Antioch, and saying that the Lord was at work in bringing many of the hearers to faith in Christ. That's a, an even greater, an even mightier work than bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. So to be under the mighty hand of God is to know that he has sovereign power and to trust in him in all circumstances. In being humbled, we're to know our place before God. Well, then we see why we're to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Uh, as Peter goes on to say, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And you notice that the contrast there between being humbled and being exalted. They're, they're, they're opposites, aren't they? No doubt Peter was recalling what he'd heard from Jesus. Um, look, look at Matthew twenty four twelve, where Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. From what Peter says, notice it's God who does the exalting. We don't exalt ourselves. Other people don't exalt us. The mighty hand of God does it. Uh, the fact that it takes the mighty hand of God to do it shows that it's something pretty amazing. Um, it's not just a case of no longer being humbled. Notice too that Peter says that this exalting will be at the proper time. Or the NIV puts it as in due time. So there's a specified time when the mighty hand of God will exalt his humbled people. When will that time be? Well, surely, uh, it's surely what Peter referred to back in, in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, as the last time. Or in chapter 2, verse 12, as the day of visitation. By that, he's, he's looking forward to the return of Christ. What happens then to exalt us? Well, look, again, if we look back to chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Peter had said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You see, we're being guarded now by God's power. That is, we're under the mighty hand of God now, and it's until the last time. It's until the proper time when our salvation is revealed and we receive our eternal inheritance. Uh, as Peter puts it uh, in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
The point is that our, our humiliation it is limited to our time in this world. We look forward to being exalted by God's grace forever when Christ returns. And then we see how we're to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, as Peter goes on to say, casting all your anxieties on him. No doubt there he's alluding to Psalm 55, 22, which says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. The, the NIV starts a new sentence at this point. So it says, cast all your anxiety on him. And that sounds like a, a blunt imperative. It gives the impression um, that having said, be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, he's now saying the next thing to do is cast all your anxiety on him. Uh, however, the ESV is correct in saying, casting all your anxieties on him. So the sense is that Peter is saying, be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, by casting all your anxiety on him. How can you be humbled under the mighty hand of God? Well, the answer is by casting all your anxieties on him. The word casting really means um, throwing. You know, the idea is of, of not hanging on to your anxieties, but of, of throwing them away uh, and being rid of them. Um, and that's not just throwing them away in a, a wishful thinking sort of way that all will be well in the end. No, it's, it's a picture of deliberately throwing your anxieties on God to deal with them. It's not a case of uh, merely mentioning them to him. You know, oh Lord, I'm a bit bothered about this. No, it's much more than that. It's, there's nothing sort of tentative about it. It's not tentatively pushing things in his direction. It's completely ridding yourself of them by dumping them on him. You know, to hang on to your worries and concerns is actually a sign of pride. It's saying, well, if, if I stick at it for long enough, uh, I, I can deal with it. I, I can sort it out in the end. I'll, I'll be strong enough in the long run if I only battle on. I'll find a way. By casting all your anxieties on him, you're humbled as you recognise that you can't do it yourself. You need nothing less than the mighty hand of God to help you and deal with things for you. You're humbled as you trust in his mighty power. And that should drive us to prayer, shouldn't it? Uh, Paul said in Philippians 4 verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Notice we not only have confidence to cast our anxieties on him because we know he has the power to deal with them. Peter goes on to say uh, that we do so because he cares for you. What an amazing thought. That the almighty sovereign ruler of the universe cares for you. Um, and we see something of that care in, in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. It's quite a long passage, but well worth uh, reading it and reminding ourselves of how our loving Heavenly Father cares for us. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Know about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They never toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first his kingdom sorry, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself sufficient for the day is its own trouble You see, we're to be humble under the mighty hand of God, not only because uh, he will exalt us by his power when Jesus returns, but also because he uses his power to care for our needs in the midst of all the troubles of this life. So we've seen that Peter speaks of humility in terms of being subject to leaders and subject to one another, but supremely in being subject to the mighty hand of God. In practice, that means casting all your anxiety on him in the knowledge that he is all-powerful and that he cares for you. Um, You could almost say that humility is inversely proportional to anxiety. By that reckoning, how humble are you? How humble are any of us?